no exodus of kids this morning, which reminds me of the blessing that it is to worship with our children and the blessing that it is for them to see their parents praising God and uh, to hear God's word preached. You know, I remember it's one of the reasons why we, we try to get kids in here pretty early, uh, the children's ministry only going up so far, uh, is because we really do believe uh, that children benefit greatly from corporate worship, from being together with God's people. And it's not just that they understand every little piece. I think we sometimes overinflate the importance of understanding. It's the overall perception, it's the overall impression that the gathered body, the people of God worshiping the Lord, makes on the hearts and minds of kids. I had the great blessing of growing up in church and seeing God's people uh, week in and week out gathered and just the impact that that made on me, the songs that are still in my head that uh, I, I haven't even sung in years. And I hear it and it pops in and I start singing it. Uh, so just uh, a blessing for them. And so to the children, I just want to say this morning, welcome. Uh, we're glad you're in here and we pray that you will uh, just, just seek the Lord as we go through this and ask him to make himself known to you through his word. You're not going to understand everything that you hear, but as you get older, you will understand more and more and more. And the Lord is laying foundation stones for you uh, that you're not even aware of. So just trust the Lord in that and, and be diligent. Uh, seek to be diligent. Seek to be a hard worker as you listen to God's word taught and as you go through the service. If you would please turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus 23. We are in verses 10 to 19 <coughs> this morning, going through the book of Exodus. Uh, we're not, we didn't just start at the beginning and going through the whole Bible. We happen to be at Exodus now, but we are in the book of Exodus. We have done Genesis uh, a few years ago, uh, and uh, we are now in chapter 23 of Exodus. And uh, it has been a joy to go through so many different kinds of texts as we've gone through narrative and We've seen the plagues and we've looked at the legal material beginning with the Ten Commandments. And we are still in that section, the section of the law. So we're going back to law school this morning as we are in the Book of the Covenant, the section of text following the Ten Commandments. <coughs> and the theme that we've been looking at <coughs> over the last couple of weeks is holiness, holiness. Our last two sermons were entitled A Holy People, parts one and two. So we looked at that the last two weeks. God is holy. This is uh, one of the great essential fundamentals. So once again, to the kids, let me just say, of all the things you need to know, if your parents were to sit you down and give you a sheet of paper and say, uh, what are the most important things that I need to know uh, in reality, in all of reality, at the very top of that list is God is holy. Holy. And we know that from the beginning of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He's the eternal, infinite being, and He's the maker of everything else, seen and unseen. God is holy. He is set apart, perfect, pure, and He calls His people to be holy as He is holy. So God's holiness is not. A great truth to be marveled at. Uh, it is something to be lived out. It is something to perceive, to understand, 
to feel, to will, and to do. God's holiness comes through in all of our actions to reflect his character in how we live and act. (coughs) You have to bear with me today as we work through that cough. As we look at the giving of the law here in Exodus, keep in mind that God is preparing Israel to enter the promised land. So that's the context. And, you know, as we dig into some of this material, uh, we, can be, we can begin to forget the context, the overarching narrative structure of what's happening in redemptive history. But this is the period of time between the exodus and the entering of Israel into the promised land. And so we're meant to understand that God is preparing his people to enter into the land. Now we know that the people will reject God, they will not trust him, they will be unfaithful, and so they will have to wander around in the wilderness for 40 years. But after that, they will, under Joshua, enter the land. So in all of this, God is preparing them To enter the promised land. They are about to go into Canaan with all of its false religion and evil practices. And keep in mind that God 400 years before, over 400 years before, had told Abraham that he was going to use his people to bring judgment upon the Canaanites. And uh, the iniquity of the Amorites, as as it was said there in Genesis 15, the iniquity of the Amorites had not yet become full. Well, when the Israelites come into Canaan, the iniquity of the Amorites will be full. They're awful practices. The two that are most striking are child sacrifice and bestiality and all the rest that comes with that. The false religion as well. All of this evil was about to be confronted by the Israelites. They were about to be among these people. They were about to see these people. They were about to take the land of these people. And God is preparing them to be his special people in that land. And even more, God is preparing them to be his special people on the whole earth. So the Israelites are to be, among all the peoples on the planet, they are to be the special, set-apart, treasure of the Lord. And as we've discussed over the last two weeks, this means for them the holiness that they are to live out. This means for them rejecting wickedness, being devoted to God, upholding justice for all, and loving enemies. And so that's what we've looked at over the last two weeks as we've talked about the Israelites as God's holy people. And we get that A set of verses in Exodus 19 where the Lord tells his people what they are to be. This is a mission statement for them in the world. He says, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So that was the role of Israel. That's what they were to be in the world. They were to act as priests collectively as a go-between between the peoples of the earth and the Lord God, the creator who had covenanted with this particular people. And they were to be a holy nation, distinct. You were to look at Israel and see something altogether different. No matter which continent you went to, you would find something altogether distinct in Israel. 
because they were worshiping the true and living God. They were to be holy because their God is holy. And I just want you to notice here as we look at these words in Exodus 19 that God's people are set apart for God by abiding in his word. Notice what the Lord says there, Exodus 19, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. How is it that we as God's people, as we go through life, as we go through our days and our weeks, our months and our years and our decades, how is it that we will actually be God's set-apart people? How will we be holy? And there's only one way. And let me just say this to all of the kids with us this morning. There's only one way that we will really love God, serve God, and trust God in this life. There's only one way. And that is if we abide in his word. To use Paul's language, to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. As we abide in God's word from Genesis to Revelation, as we make the scriptures our great life's goal, our great study, our leisure, and our labor, as we make the scriptures everything to us, we will see Christ lifted up from Genesis to Revelation in all his glory, and the gospel of Christ, the word of Christ, will dwell in us richly. That's how we will be God's holy people. So let me say this to you this morning. If you are caught up in the thickets of sin, straying from the Lord, maybe discouraged or frustrated in your life this morning, and you're just saying, why is my Christian life just so dry? Why is my Christian life so joyless? Why am I so ineffective for the cause of Christ? The answer will always be traced back to this, not abiding in God's word. Prayerfully, Christ-centered, meditatively abiding in the voice of the Lord. Today, we continue with this theme of holiness but with a focus <coughs> excuse me, on Israel's calendar, the way in which Israel is distinct or set apart by its calendar. So you can look on the screen here. <coughs> the title for the sermon this morning is A Holy Calendar. So we have a holy people, and this holy people have a holy calendar. So stand with me as we read our passage together this morning. Exodus 23, 10 to 19. <coughs> this is the word of the Lord. For six years <coughs> you shall sow your land and gather in its yield, but the seventh year You shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat, and what they leave the beasts of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. Six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest." 
that your ox and your donkey may have rest, and the son of your servant woman and the alien may be refreshed. Pay attention to all that I have said to you, and make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. Three times in the year you shall keep a feast to me. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread, as I commanded you. You shall eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time in the month of Aviv. For in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty-handed. You shall keep the feast of harvest of the first fruits of your labor, of what you sow in the field. You shall keep the feast of ingathering at the end of the year, when you gather in from the field the fruit of your labor. Three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened, or let the fat of my feast remain until the morning. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. So you can go ahead and be seated. It seems very strange to us as we read some of this. Pray to the Lord this morning that we'll be able to make sense of it and that the Lord would use his word to sanctify us. As Paul says to Timothy, that we would be fully equipped, ready for every good work. You know, the Lord has many good works for us to do, which he prepared beforehand, uh, before he made us. As Ephesians 2.10 says, that God has these good works for us to do, to walk in them, and the way in which we will be ready for those works is by God's word. Even verses like this that seem very obscure to us. So let's pray and ask for God's help, and that he would sanctify us with his word. Lord, we're grateful for this time together. We thank you for uh, the children among us more than usual, Lord. We pray that you would open up their eyes and ears and hearts. We pray that they would listen, God, and that you would bring clearly into their minds the truth of your word. And God, that they would be impacted deeply by your spirit. We pray that you would regenerate some of them today. And not just the children, Lord, but any adults who are among us this morning who are unconverted. We pray that you would grant them the grace of a new heart with which they can repent and believe. We pray, Father, that you would make Christ the rich treasure that he is before their eyes. Lord, we pray for those of us who are converted, who are believers. We ask that you would sanctify us by your word today. We pray that our devotion to you would grow, that our walk with you would deepen. We pray, Lord, that we would be about your work about your name, that we would be about other people. Father, we pray that you would purge us of selfishness and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Father, we pray that you would use this gathering this morning and uh, particularly now, this time in your word, to sharpen us for your glory in this world. God, we pray that uh, we would be truly helped by this time and by the fellowship that we have had and will have with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, we pray that your, your name and all of this would be exalted. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this morning we're going to look at <coughs> three things about Israel's holy calendar. You can see these up on the screen here. We have rhythms of compassion in verses 10 to 12. Remembrance of provision in verses 14 to 19, 
And then rejection of pollution in verse 13. You'll notice that in the middle of this, there seems to be this random verse about devotion to God, exclusive devotion to Yahweh, just sort of stuck in the middle. Uh, Verses 10 to 12, clearly a unit. Verses 14 to 19, clearly a unit. And then verse 13, kind of jammed in the middle there. Uh, That's the center of the passage, and we'll talk about that as we come to that final point, rejection of pollution. So let's look first at rhythms of compassion, and for that we're going to look closely at verses 10 to 12. So turn with me there if you would. For six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield, but the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat, and what they leave the beasts of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard. And with your olive orchard, six days you shall do your work, (coughs) but on the seventh day you shall rest, (coughs) that your ox and your donkey may have rest, and the son of your servant woman and the alien may be refreshed. Here we get (coughs) a reiteration of the fourth commandment, the Sabbath or ceasing command, and Sabbath, the verb there, uh, underlying the, the noun Sabbath uh, is to stop or to cease. That's the idea. And so the fourth commandment is where we get this uh, unpacked for us or at least uh, given to us in a very clear way. Exodus 20 verses 8 to 11. I'll read that to you again. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to Yahweh your God. On it you shall Not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days Yahweh made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, Yahweh blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. This idea of Sabbath, to stop or to cease is for Israel, Uh, this stopping day was on the seventh day, modeled after God's activity in creation. It was a sign of God's covenant with Israel, and it served to set them apart from other nations. And we'll read this when we come to Exodus 31, where it is associated with a sign. As I've said before, the, the rainbow is the sign of the Noahic covenant. Circumcision is the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. And the Sabbath day is the sign of the Mosaic Covenant. And we see this in Exodus 31, 13. You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you, that I, the Lord, set you apart as a holy people on the earth. And this annoyed ancient peoples. The Romans, for example, were annoyed by the Sabbath. Of course, circumcision appalled many uh, in the Greco-Roman world, but the Sabbath day was appalling to many. The Jews were like these lazy people who would stop working on the seventh day. It sanctified them. It set them apart. But the Sabbath day, which Israel observed each week, extended... In Israel, in the calendar of Israel, it extended into a Sabbath principle involving years as well as days. So it wasn't just that the Sabbath would be celebrated once a week. It was built in 
to the whole structure of the years of Israel, culminating, of course, in the Jubilee. And that's what we have here in verses 10 to 11. Six years of cultivating the land, followed by one year of letting it lie fallow, letting it rest. So for six years, just as the Israelites would work for six days, and they would rest on the seventh, they would stop, they would cease. So too, the Israelites would work the land for six years, and in the seventh year, they would let it lie fallow. They would let it rest. This is to be the case for a field or a vineyard or an orchard. Wherever there is produce, there is to be a Sabbath year of rest. And then in verse 12, we get the Sabbath day, which we've already seen. But here's where I want to focus your attention. What reason is given for these Sabbaths? As you read verses 10 to 12 here in this passage, and in the context of what we've looked at already in the last couple of weeks, what reason is given for these Sabbaths? Answer, compassion, care, love for people, love even for animals, care of others. These Sabbaths are explained here as rhythms of compassion. So you notice that in verse 11, that the poor of your people may eat, and what they leave the beasts of the field may eat. Verse 12, that your ox and your donkey may have rest, and the son of your servant woman and the alien (coughs) may be refreshed. The people mentioned here are those most likely to be burdened with work. Those most likely to feel the strain of work. Now, we know that the Sabbath was uh, given for all of Israel. And built into that was rest and refreshment for all the people. But here the emphasis falls on those who are most likely to be crushed under the burden of work most likely to be taken advantage of, the poor, the servants, and foreigners. And this is the point that Jesus was making in his Sabbath battles with the Jewish leaders. If you've read through the Gospels, uh, you'll notice constantly that there are these references to Jesus doing things on the Sabbath. He's healing on the Sabbath. He's telling a man who has been healed to take up his bed and go on the Sabbath. And the religious leaders are inflamed over this. How can Jesus do these things on the Sabbath? And Jesus reminds them in Mark 2, 27, the Sabbath was made for man, (coughs) not man (coughs) for the Sabbath. And that, of course, is going back to passages like this, and specifically this passage, in which the emphasis of the Sabbath falls on the care of people. It falls on compassion. So in addition to being a sign of the Mosaic Covenant, the Sabbath was a gracious provision for God's people, and especially for those who could be exploited. All were to be given a day of rest. All were to be given refreshment. And here's the main thing that I want us to see. We've talked about Uh, The application of the Sabbath, when we went through the Ten Commandments, we talked about the Fourth Commandment, the application of the Sabbath. But with this particular passage and the emphasis here, 
Here's what I want all of us to notice. The calendar of Israel, with its Sabbath principle, offered these rhythms of compassion. It put God's compassion for his people on display, and it offered an opportunity for God's people to likewise carry out the same compassion and care towards others. In other words, it was a mark of Israel's holiness. And we tend to think of it as, uh, as we just read, as just the sign of the covenant with Israel. But it was built into this sign was the compassionate care of the Lord for the well-being of his people. It was a mark of God's nature, of God's compassion, <coughs> and of the holiness that he was calling his people to. Exodus 22, verse 27 we came to this just a couple of weeks ago as we talked about uh, God's holiness and God's character and how that was to show up in the lives of the people. And there the Lord refers to the poor and he says, If this poor man cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. This is the kind of God that we call Abba, Father. God cares for us. He is compassionate for us. He sees into our suffering. And this is what it means to be God's people, to care about the same. Where others would trample on people, where others would overwork the poor, the slave, or the foreigner, God's people would be those who care for others. God's people would be those who extend rest. And we need to consider... That this same principle is true for us today, very much. This is also a mark of our holiness, of our being set apart for the Lord. This is one of the things that will distinguish us from the world. The world talks about care and compassion. The world talks about uh, seeing into people's suffering. But Christians will be known by this truly in substance, not as a political tagline, not as just a superficial show, not as something for self-righteous purposes, but a true, substantive, authentic love for other people, a compassion and a care. This is a mark of our holiness. We are a people who see the pain, the struggle, the burdens of others, and do what we can to bring relief. We are a people marked by our compassion, by our desire to relieve suffering. So let me just say this to you personally as you think about your own rhythms. What about the people in your sphere of life? As you go about here in Canaan, metaphorically speaking, as you go about in this world, in your sphere of influence in your life, as you go about your routines, your work days and your work week, as you move through your days and your years, would it be said of you that you are like the Lord, that you are like the God who is compassionate? For I will hear, I am compassionate. This is one of the characteristics of those who call God Father, one of the characteristics of those who worship the holy God. And let me just say this to us, what about us as a church, as gospel community groups, as ministries within the church, and as a church as a whole? Is this 
one of the ways that we will be identified, one of the marks of the people of God here is that we are compassionate in the same way that God is compassionate. And that the rhythms of our lives, that our worship services, that our gatherings on the Lord's Day, that all of the things that we do throughout the year will be marked by this concern to bring relief to those in need, to care for those who could be exploited, to live out a life of compassionate concern. This is one of the great marks, as we talked about with James, to care for widows and orphans in their distress. This is one of the great marks of God's people. And it has been one of the great marks of God's people throughout history as we think about uh, many of the charitable organizations that have been founded, as we think about the advent of, of hospitals and all sorts of other caring ministries and industries and organizations throughout the history of Western civilization. Consider all the ways that the Christian ethic, pushing people towards compassion, has reflected the holiness of our God. So we see among this holy people, with this holy calendar, we see these rhythms of compassion. Next we come to remembrance of provision. Look with me at verses 14 to 19. Three times in the year you shall keep a feast to me. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. As I commanded you, you shall eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time in the month of Aviv. For in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty-handed. You shall keep the feast of harvest <coughs> of the first fruits of your labor. Of what you sow in the field, you shall... <coughs> You shall keep the feast of ingathering at the end of the year, when you gather in from the field the fruit of your labor. Three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened, or let the fat of my feast remain until the morning. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Now, this portion may seem pretty obscure or maybe even boring to you. I'll just use that word. We don't say that sort of thing. That when we read the Bible, this part is boring. We don't say that out loud, but maybe you've thought that before. This is weird, and maybe you've even thought this is kind of boring. I'm going to skip over this. I'm going to get to some good stuff. Maybe you've thought to yourself before, here we go talking about those feasts again. And then you move on to the next part. I've heard people refer to these sections before as kind of like gloss over sections. Maybe a little like genealogies or uh, the description of the tabernacle, which we're going to be coming to as we continue through Exodus. So maybe Exodus has uh, several of those gloss over sections as you see it. But it's important that we keep in mind what these feasts are about. We remember why this material is even here. They are reminders of God's provision. They are uh, like little markers in uh, the calendar of Israel's history as they will move forward. They're little markers of God's provision. They remind the people of what God has done and is doing and will do for them. 
They are meant to keep the people's minds immersed in the things of God. And as we'll talk about in a little bit, to keep the people away from other gods. And maybe you've noticed this. You know, you, you aren't able to come to gather with God's people on the Lord's Day for maybe a couple of weeks or a few weeks or something like that. Or maybe you just, you just kind of fall away out of church for a short time and then you come back. Gathering like this with God's people helps to immerse our minds in the things of God so that we don't stray towards false gods. And you've seen it probably in your own life. When you, when you miss church, when you do not come to gather with God's people, how your mind is busier and pursuing the things of this world more than when you have this marker every week. Coming together, this reminder of God's provisions of salvation, this reminder of what God has done in Christ to save us and what he is doing now to sustain us unto that great day. We need this. We need to be here with God's people. It is no small thing to be gathered like this, to worship and to be reminded So I want to take a minute now just to simplify this a little as we go through these verses, verses 14 (coughs) to 19. I I want to try to pull this apart and just simplify it for all of us. These verses can be divided into two parallel sets, two parallel sets. Verses 14 to 16 is set one, and then next to it is verses 17 to 18. We get these two parallel sets. I'm sorry, 17 to 19. In other words, verse 14 corresponds to verse 17. Then verse 15 matches up with verse 18. And then verse 16 is meant to be read with verse 19. And so this is the parallel structure uh, that is given to us as we read these verses together. So I'm going to take them in that way. And hopefully that will clarify for us what is going on here as we look at these feasts. So first, look at verses 14 and 17, the the parallel verse with 14. (coughs) Three (coughs) times, excuse me, three times in the year you shall keep a feast to me. And then on to verse 17, three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God. So here we get the big idea. This is the header. God is commanding his people through Moses to observe three major feasts or three major festivals in the year. And there will be some other national observances like the Day of Atonement and the Feast of Trumpets, and those will be mentioned later in Leviticus. But for now, we get these three great feasts, national feasts, in the year. And these three feasts will involve every male coming to the central place of worship, whether that be the tabernacle or the temple, every male will come to this central place and offer sacrifices to the Lord. Now, we need to recognize here the, the, why is it that the males are coming to the central place? Why is it that the males are coming on behalf of their families? And this just reminds us of a principle that we find all throughout Scripture, and that is the headship that God has given to fathers and husbands in their homes. 
And we see this in Ephesians 5, for example, uh, with wives called to submit to their husbands, and husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. And then you keep going down from the marital relationship down to the, ch- the relationship between the parents and the child, and the specific person addressed by Paul is fathers. Now, that doesn't negate mothers and the role of mothers in raising their children, but Paul specifically addresses fathers. Why? Because fathers are to lead their families. They are to lead in instructing their children. They are to lead their wives. And so here we see this headship reality playing out as Israel's males would come forward to the place of central worship and offer sacrifices to the Lord on behalf of their families. The comment at the end of verse 15 seems to apply across the board for all of these feasts. None shall appear before me empty-handed. So the men, as heads of their households, will come forward and observe these feasts. These feasts would have involved much preparation and travel efforts and time, creating a deep impression upon those who observe them. So you can imagine all that would go into at every single home as the men are preparing to go to the central place of worship, all the preparations that would be made by the entire family, by the wives and the children, in preparing for the man to set out to offer these sacrifices to the Lord. All of the time that would be invested, these were meant to create a deep impression of worshiping the Lord. So verses 14 and 17 function as the header. This is the big idea. This is what is to happen. Three times a year, Israel is to celebrate these great feasts. (coughs) Now we come to verses 15 and 18 (coughs) with the first feast in the year. This is the first feast on the calendar. (coughs) So this is what it says, verses 15 and 18. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. As I commanded you, you shall eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time in the month of Aviv. For in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty-handed. And then we read this in verse 18, which corresponds to verse 15. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened, Or let the fat of my feast remain until the morning. Details regarding the feast of unleavened bread were given earlier in Exodus. And you'll remember we went through that material. A lot of conversation about the Passover and the feast of unleavened bread in chapters 12 and 13. As the Passover and the feast of unleavened bread that follows, the seven days that follow, are interconnected. They're joined together. The month of Aviv marks the beginning of the year for Israel. That was the first month. That was their January, as it were. It was when God brought them out of Egypt as a nation, (coughs) when he delivered them from slavery (coughs) with a mighty hand against the Egyptians. It was when God passed through the land and he put to death the firstborn of all the households of Egypt, but he spared the firstborn of Israel. And remember there as the blood is over the doorway and on the doorpost of every house. And, uh, you know, I'll just say this. Even from the time I was a child, this is one of the greatest pictures, if not the greatest picture in the Bible of the gospel. 
as we think about the Passover and the blood that the Israelites put over their doors and on the side of their doors. And God came through, he saw the blood and he passed over the sins of his people who were sinners as well and he struck down the Egyptians. The Lord passes over our sins through the blood of Christ. It is the only way That any of us will be free of our sin guilt. Every single person in this room, every child in this room is a sinner. We have all sinned against God. We have all done wrong. We have all dishonored God. We've all disobeyed our parents. We've hated our neighbor in our heart. We've coveted. Oh, how we have coveted. And the Lord laid on Christ the iniquity of us all. So for those who are believers in Jesus Christ, Christ's blood covers us and God passes over our sins in his judgment when he sees the sacrifice, the accepted, perfect sacrifice of Christ. So nowhere in the Bible do we find a more beautiful picture of the heart of the gospel than at the Passover And the feast of unleavened bread was meant to bring the minds of the Israelites back to this central moment of redemption. On the night of Passover, the people were to be ready to leave. No time for leaven in their bread. And they were to leave behind the leaven of Egypt to walk as God's holy people in a new land. So... God instituted a feast in which no leavened bread or bread with yeast was to be eaten for seven days. And we read this in Exodus 13, 7. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you. And no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. And as Exodus chapter 12, verse 10 says, nothing shall remain until morning when the Passover sacrifice is celebrated, and you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. So you see how verse 18 unpacks details about verse 15. Now we come to the final part, verses 16 and 19, with two agricultural feasts. So we have the first feast is meant to commemorate God's salvation of the people out of Egypt. He saved them. He passed over them. He executed their enemies. And he brought his people out of Egypt. Now, in these verses, we get agricultural feasts. Reminders of God's provision in the new land. This is what it says in verse 16. You shall keep the feast of harvest of the first fruits of your labor, of what you sow in the field, You shall keep the feast of ingathering at the end of the year. When you gather in from the field the fruit of your labor. And then in verse 19. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. So here we have two agricultural feasts grouped together. The first feast commemorates the salvation. These feasts are agricultural in nature. The Feast of Harvest, or you may have heard it referred to as the Feast of Weeks, or also Pentecost. All of these are the same thing. And this is celebrated in the summer at the wheat harvest, when the Israelites would harvest the wheat. 
and the Feast of Ingathering, and you may have heard that referred to as the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. This is celebrated in the fall in conjunction with the olive and grape harvest. And it ends the year. It ends the agricultural year. And so the first feast, uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, it also coincides with the barley harvest. And then in the summer, that's in the spring, and then in the summer, you have the wheat harvest. And then in the fall, you have the harvest of olives and grapes. And as we read here with the Feast of Harvest, The best of the first fruits of your ground are to be brought. And I talked about this a couple of weeks ago, but I want to just reiterate this again. You know, I I personally think that tithing is is a biblical principle, but not a requirement, a binding requirement on God's people in the New Testament. It's not mentioned in the New Testament as binding on God's people. And when Paul discusses giving... He talks about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9. However, I want to say this, just as we think about the Sabbath, and I think the Sabbath and tithing are very similar. Although tithing is not not a law, it's not a mandate, as it was intertwined with taxation in ancient Israel, and it was intertwined with the care of the priests and the Levites, as it is not binding in the new covenant, it is a biblical principle of wisdom. It is a great starting point as we think about giving the first fruits to the Lord, as we, give it, as we bring to God our very best. So let me just ask you this about giving, and we don't talk very much about this here at Four Corners, but I just want to ask you, is, is this, does this play much of a role in your Christian life? As we look at Israel and we notice these feasts, as we see the way in which the Israelites would bring their firstborn of their flocks, as they would redeem the firstborn of their children, as they would come and they would bring the first fruits of their field, Are we just taking all the things that the Lord gives us, that the Lord fills our cup with, and just enjoying them for ourselves? Or are we bringing to the Lord the first fruits of what he has provided? There's not a single thing in any of our lives that does not come from God. We could drop dead this afternoon. Any of us, every breath is from God. Every dollar Every little number, every little digit in our bank account, every blade of grass that we care for in our yard, every piece of furniture, every hair on our heads, every bit of medication we buy to sustain our bodies and food that we eat is from God. All of it. And we act as though it is just all for our enjoyment. That is a a gluttonous heart. It is a heart that is not truly committed to the Lord. So hear me. I'm not saying to you this morning that if you're not tithing, that that applies to you. What I am saying is that this is for you to search your own heart before the Lord, before your Father, For all of us to search our hearts before God and to ask him, Lord, what does it look like for me to live in light of your revelation, to live as one of your holy people and to bring to you the first fruits of all that you have given me? Not that I have generated myself. Think of God's providence. There's not one promotion, not one job interview, not one line on your resume or CV 
that is not due to God's good providence. Not a single one. Everything from him. God gives us many things to enjoy, but not to the neglect of worshiping him and giving to him and his work. So as you think about this feast of harvest, in what way are you bringing, truly bringing your heart to the Lord, right? We talk about giving our heart to the Lord. This is Christianese. This is, this is cliche language. But what does Jesus say? Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Whether or not God has our hearts, hear this people of God, whether or not God truly has our hearts will depend on whether or not God has our treasures. We cannot say with our lips, God has my heart, but our treasures are in our own pockets. Consider what it means to truly love and serve and know this holy God. That's the Feast of Harvest. And then we see the Feast of Ingathering. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Well, I'll just keep going. (laughs) That's uh, one that I remember... We had a little um, question and answer thing that we did back in uh, the fall. And the ladies were going through their Bible studies, the different Bible studies they had done. <coughs> and they kept a notebook of questions. And uh, they, they sent me those, some of those questions they sent and then some they asked in the moment. But questions that they had about different passages. And one of the questions was, and I don't know who submitted that question. You don't have to raise your hand. Uh, but someone among us, one of the ladies, submitted this question about this verse, which appears two other times in um, the Pentateuch. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. And the question here is, what in the world do we do with this? And really, uh, there, was, there, there was a text, a, a Ugaritic inscription that was used to, to kind of associate this with Canaanite practice. But it's a little, it's a little obscure, an interpretation of what it says is, is, is just not clear. And so how are we to understand what is going on here? In my mind, in light of the context that we're going to talk about in a moment with verse 13, I think it has something to do with two things. Given the parallel structure that we find here between these verses, I think it has something to do, and one commentator, uh, T. Desmond Alexander, has made this point very clearly. It has something to do with the feast of the, the feast of ingathering that we see here. And the reason I think that is because it's, it's parallel with what we find before. The, the first part of verse 19 goes back to the feast of harvest. And as we saw the parallel structure before that, this seems to suggest that somehow in the feast of ingathering, there was embedded in that, uh, perhaps uh, because that's when the goats would Uh, would be born. Perhaps that was when uh, there would be some kind of emphasis on the fertility of that in Canaan. But there seems to be some kind of connection with this fall feast of ingathering. And I would say, secondly, given the emphasis on not being like the Canaanites and not worshiping their gods, I think there's something here going on with Canaanite worship. And some have pointed out just the cruelty of this or uh, the lack of uh, 
the lack of rationality here that you would have a young goat who would get its life from its mother's milk and then you would turn around and then bring its death about by boiling it in its mother's milk. That you would associate the life of the goat with the death of the goat with this milk. And just that that's cruel and unnatural. I think that's probably part of it. But the larger context I think very much here is that this is a mark of Canaanite practice. This is a mark of Canaanite worship. And nothing of the sort is to be found among the Israelites. They apparently knew immediately what it was, and that's why no explanation is given. Oh yeah, boiling a goat in its mother's milk. A young goat in its mother's milk. Yeah, I mean, we know, we know how that goes down. And they move on. So I think it would have been something practiced among the Canaanites. I'll come back to that in a moment. But let me finish up this point by saying this. The calendar of Israel was a protective against forgetting. God was continually reminding his people year in and year out of the two great aspects of his salvation. Bringing out and bringing in. Think about that for a moment. These three great feasts in the entire year. The first one reminds them of how God brought them out. And the last one reminds them of how God has brought them in, will bring them in, and then once they're in the land, has brought them in to the land of Canaan. And I think this is instructive for us because it reminds us of our need to constantly be reminded of these two great provisions of the Lord. Think about that for a moment. We are constantly in need of being confronted with the fact that God has saved us from sin, from death, from wrath, and he has saved us unto glory. The feast reminded Israel that God had brought them out of slavery in Egypt and he was bringing them into the promised land. And all the things that go on in the lives of Christians should remind us of these two great provisions of the Lord. That God saved us from something. And he saved us to something. We are waiting on our heavenly home. I remember that song, Beulah Land. Uh, That's all I really remember from it. But when I was a kid growing up uh, in a country Southern Baptist church, that was the constantly being sung and I heard it sung at funerals and I don't even remember the words to it but it but it stuck in my mind that there is this anticipation and when Christians die they die in hope they die in hope of what's coming there's a place for us we will dwell with our God we will live forever in the rest of God's promised land Saved from the course of this world. Saved from the prince of the power of the air. Saved from being dead in trespasses and sins. Saved from the wrath of God upon sin. And saved to eternal glory in the likeness of Christ in the presence of God forever. That's what the Lord has done for us. And Israel needed to be reminded of this constantly. And so do we. When we do not read our Bibles, when we do not come to gather with God's people, when we do not engage with God's people throughout the week, when we do not bathe our minds in God's truth through scripture memory and listening to God's praises and singing God's praises, when we do not do these things, we forget 
and how easily we forget. So many distractions, so many things to sway our minds away from what God has saved us from and to. And so we are a people constantly in need of reminders. And so was Israel. As we finish this morning, look at verse 13, rejection of pollution. Briefly, we find only this verse here, and we've already hinted at it. Pay attention to all that I have said to you, and make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. So why is Israel to do all of this? Why are they to do all of these things that God has said? Why are they to do all of this observing and celebrating? And the answer is to keep their focus on the Lord. To keep their mind glued to God. To remember that they are servants of Lord Yahweh. Verse 17 refers to God as Lord Yahweh. You'll you'll notice in that verse that the the G-O-D is capitalized and not the word Lord. And that's because what we find there is Adonai Yahweh. Lord Yahweh, emphasizing that the covenant-keeping God is master over his people. He is to be worshipped exclusively. There is to be no other. They are to remember that they live before him and are in relationship to him. They are to remember that they owe their very existence to him. And that is the reason why the Lord says here that they must pay attention to everything that he has said. Verse 13 functions in this way like a hinge upon which the whole passage turns. They are to be careful to obey God and to reject any pagan influence. To reject any Canaanite pollution. And I think that's in the context here as we think about boiling a young goat in its mother's milk. I think that's connected to what we find here in verse 13. To practice such a thing is to be involved in the fertility worship of the Canaanite people. It is to name the names of other gods. It is to put other gods alongside of Yahweh. Yeah, we think Yahweh's great. He rescued us and all. But we also like these other gods and goddesses. We just want to make sure all our bases are covered. That was the temptation (coughs) throughout Israel's history. And one to which they constantly fail. Not even the names of these other gods are to be mentioned. Instead, Lord Yahweh is to be always on their minds and lips. This is ultimately what the Sabbaths and all the feasts are about. So next time you ask yourself, what is that material about that I read? Is like all these sacrifices and feasts and the days and all that stuff. It's all about this. It's all about being holy unto the Lord. It's all about minds focused, laser beam focused on God. And when that happens, when our minds remain focused on the Lord, we have no time, no space for idols. But listen to this. Where you free up space in your mind, you don't fill it with the things of God, just idle time. We think sometimes we could just sort of take mental vacations. There's no vacation from the Lord. There's no vacation from holiness. There's no vacation from devotion to God's glory. That's what we're constantly about. And when we take a vacation 
from this thinking, from this focus, from this remembrance, the idolatry of this world, the idols of this world will flood our hearts. So just think about your own heart this morning. You're just not thinking about the Lord very much, just really focused, fixated even on the things of this life, earthly things. The cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches which choke out the word that's planted and it proves unfruitful. Will that be any of us? We pray that it won't be the case, but that we will be those constantly reminded in all the rhythms and routines of our lives as individuals and as a church and as families, constantly reminded of God's gracious salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for this time in the scriptures. We thank you for this material on feasts and days and, Lord, how it helps us to see what you were about with your people and what you are still about with your people. Lord, it helps us to understand what it means, what it looks like to be holy unto the Lord. God, would we be your holy people? Would the people we know say, that guy is different. That lady is different. That kid, that teenager is different. Lord, would we not just fall into the flood going along the broad way that leads to destruction? But Father, would we be those who walk through the narrow gate, along the narrow path, with eyes fixed on you, setting our minds on things above, where Christ is. And when Christ appears, who is our life, then we will appear with him in glory. God, we praise you for this great hope that fills our hearts and pushes us forward. And we pray that through this hope in Christ, we would be your holy people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. At this time in our service, we will...